Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence with us and pray that you will open our minds to understand your word and open our hearts and our wills to obey. We ask in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to try to compete with Peter's sermon on, uh, after, uh, on, on the day of Pentecost. But I was impressed when I was thinking through this with the last line on the front page of your bulletin, the last line that Roger read to us. What does this mean? The words of those who witnessed the Spirit of God coming in such a wonderful way. <clears throat> well, the text of Acts chapter 2, read to us by Roger and Corinne, uh, tells us of the events of the day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon interpreting their significance. My text, however, is across the page in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The situation described by Marion last week at the time of Jesus' ascension. These words of Jesus are very well known, probably to most of us. And there he was foretelling what would occur ten days later on the day of Pentecost. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. <clears throat> I'm going to turn this sermon on its head, if you like, because usually we look uh, for or draw our applications at the end of the sermon when we ask, what does it mean for me? Or perhaps less politely, so what? But today, I want to ask that question right at the outset and spend our time considering its implications. We've read the facts and Peter's interpretation of the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. But what do they mean for us? We may ask the question in different ways. Why was power necessary for the disciples? What was it for? And what does the Holy Spirit's power look like to us? How are we to recognize it over against cheap counterfeits? Well, there's no doubt whatsoever that Pentecost was a day of power. The Holy Spirit is introduced to us on the day of Pentecost as the spirit of power. And in particular, the one who gives power for witness, to be witnesses to Jesus. And I think all of us would agree that without the power of the Holy Spirit, our witness would be utterly futile. But power can be a very dangerous commodity because power can harm as well as heal, crush as well as serve, destroy as well as create. And there are too many who pursue power without making any of these necessary distinctions. I want to remind you in my introduction that it was the lust for power that led to the downfall of Satan, and then also to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, when Satan offered them a power which he hinted God had denied them. 
Lust for power is without doubt one of the chief characteristics of our fallenness. The three major human ambitions, to be wealthy, famous, and influential, are all ambitions for power. We see it in politics and public life. We see it in big business and industry. We see it in the professions of medicine, law, and education. Because professional expertise brings power over a comparatively powerless public. I'm afraid we see it also in the church, where power struggles and maneuvering for appointments still take place. You are no doubt familiar with the dictum, knowledge is power. It's intended to put us in a position of advantage and thus overwhelm our opponents or competitors. Well, this lust for power, even for the power of the Holy Spirit, in the end, when it is unmasked, proves often to be a form of religious worldliness, a desire to have, to impress, to manipulate, to dominate, building egos by building empires. We need to be able to recognize it in the world and avoid it in the church. I expect all of us know the famous epigram of Lord Acton who said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Do you know much about Lord Acton? He was a politician, a member of the British Parliament at the end of the 19th century. He was a close personal friend of Prime Minister Gladstone. And he knew what he was talking about regarding power in politics. He was very distressed to see democracy undermined by power struggles. He was also a devout Roman Catholic. And when the First Vatican Council met in 1870, he was horrified by the proclamation of papal infallibility, declaring that the Pope himself could never be mistaken when speaking ex cathedra. Acton regarded it as a typical example of power hunger. Do I need then to remind you that Jesus warned us of the lust for power? Jesus said, out in the world they are hungry for authority. They like to boss people around and throw their weight about. But he added, it shall not be so among you. The characteristic of the kingdom community is not power. It's weakness. It's not authority. It's humility and gentleness. So then, after this rather long and negative introduction, I want us to ask and grapple with this question. What kind of power is the power of the Holy Spirit? And is Holy Spirit power any different from any other kinds of power? Isn't this the same Jesus who declared in the Sermon on the Mount that it would not be the brash and powerful, but the meek who would inherit the earth? Not the bellicose, but the peacemakers who would see God? Did not he himself, at the time of his arrest, declare that he could have called 60,000 angels to overpower his enemies, but he elected not to do so, and went to his death instead? If Jesus identified meekness, humility, and suffering as the marks of his kingdom, then why does he here in our text promise power to those who follow him? 
For one thing, we shall be able to agree it is, uh, to agree it is power for holiness. But I want to lay emphasis on our text this morning that Holy Spirit power is power for witness. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, said Jesus. It's power for witness. But that leads us to a necessary supplementary question. What sort of power, witness, does the Holy Spirit empower? What kind of witness is compatible with the power of the Holy Spirit? How do the two mesh with one another? Well, I hope you will think along with me as we try to answer these questions. First, there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit gives power to witness to Jesus Christ. You shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me. Recall who Jesus was talking to. It was his disciples. Those same disciples who, a few weeks previously, had deserted him and fled out of fear for their own safety when it looked like Jesus would be arrested. And now, Jesus doesn't ask. He tells them that they will be witnesses. How would this be possible for these timid disciples? Our text tells us the Holy Spirit would have come upon them and changed them. The power of the Holy Spirit would overcome their fear. Paul writes to Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. So all authentic witness is witness to Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to forget ourselves in order to become absorbed and even obsessed in our witness to Jesus Christ. But we also really must rescue the word witness from its contemporary abuse. <clears throat> witness is not a synonym for autobiography. To witness is not to talk about ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the chief witness, and he never talks about himself. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will bear witness to me. The essential, the preeminent ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Christ. And if we are filled with the power of the Spirit, the first sign of Holy Spirit's power is that we are concerned to talk about Christ and not about ourselves. Did you catch that reference in our scripture reading? After reviewing before the people the prophecy of Joel and its recent fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter declares in chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Jesus' word was fulfilled. Those who once fled in shame and refused to be identified with Jesus now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, are readily identifying themselves as his witnesses. There is, as a matter of fact, another rather beautiful and practical example of this immediately after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 3. I won't read it, but you probably remember the story that the congenital cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple was miraculously healed in the name and by the power of the name of Jesus. He was a well-known figure in Jerusalem. For nearly 40 years, he had been carried by his friends and family to his particular beggar's pitch, which was the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And to cut a long story short, he was wonderfully healed, and he jumped to his feet, and they went around leaping and jumping and praising God. So a crowd gathered, as you might imagine, astounded at what they saw. And when Peter began to preach, do you remember what he said? He said, why are you surprised at this, this man who has been healed? And why do you stare at us? Why look at him? Why look at us? Peter made no mention of his part in this man's miraculous healing. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has exalted his servant Jesus. And by faith in his name, he has made this man whole before you. And then he went on to say that salvation is in nobody else, etc. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, Peter says, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So do you see the thrust of what he was saying? Why look at him? Why look at us? And he redirected their gaze to Jesus. Now, this is the essence of spirit-empowered testimony. In fact, the very, very first test of power, whether it is Holy Spirit power or not, is whether it brings glory to Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Holy Spirit power is the power to witness to Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, Holy Spirit power is the power to witness to the cross of Christ, and not just to Christ the teacher or the healer, etc., let me ask you to think about this. Who is it that is talking to the apostles in Jerusalem in chapter 1? Who is it that is promising them the gift of the Spirit and commissioning them to be witnesses? Well, you say, it's obvious. It's the risen Christ. But in the resurrected body of the risen Christ are the scars of his passion, which are in his resurrected body still today, though glorified, and he will never throughout eternity lose the evidences of his death on the cross for our sins. In their preaching that the apostles preached Christ risen and ascended and glorified, that's true. But they emphasized that the resurrection was God's vindication of the cross and of the one who died there for our sins. And who is it today who is occupying the throne of God and receiving the worship of heaven? It's the Lamb who was slain. And who is the Jesus to whom the Holy Spirit witnesses throughout the pages of the New Testament? For you know, don't you, that the New Testament is the Holy Spirit's witness through the apostles to Jesus Christ. And who is the Jesus Christ to whom the Holy Spirit bears witness with power in the New Testament? It's the Jesus who committed himself at his baptism to suffering and death. It's the Jesus who renounced power during his wilderness temptation. It's the Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem. And it's the Jesus who suffered and died in abject weakness on the cross. Friends, I want to ask you in your heart and mind to answer the question, have you ever come to terms with the weakness of Jesus? Over the centuries, many have misunderstood this and entered the work of the church as a path to personal power. The cross is the power of God through the weakness of Christ. Many people wish it were not so. 
They don't want to follow a weak and suffering Jesus. They would much rather follow a powerful Jesus who would speak a word or call angels to destroy his enemies. I want to suggest to you, friends, that this is the second test as to whether the, whole, the power we're talking about is Holy Spirit power or not. Holy Spirit power is the power to witness to the weakness of the cross. And I want to encourage you to beware of any incompatibility between the Jesus to whom we witness and the persons who are doing the witnessing. We cannot witness to the weakness of the cross from a, per a position of personal strength. Those who preach the cross must be marked by the cross. We too are called to be weak, vulnerable in brokenness in preaching the cross. It's in a weak witness to a weak Christ that the power of the Spirit is demonstrated. But still we haven't finished. There's a third observation to make. And that's to say that the Holy Spirit power, uh, Holy Spirit power gives power to witness to the weakness of the cross through the weakness of the word. Think with me about that. You've noticed, haven't you, because we always have to look at the text within its context, that Jesus' promise of the power of the Spirit and Jesus' commission to be his witnesses are both given in answer to a question. The question comes in chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin, in his wonderful commentary on the Acts, writes that there are as many errors as words in this question. The apostles were still in confusion about the purpose of Jesus. They were dreaming of a recovery. They talked about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They were dreaming of a recovery of the Jewish nation's national independence which it had won for a brief and intoxicating period during the time of the Maccabees, only to be lost again a few, a few years later. So they were dreaming of political power and military power, the power of an insurrection against the occupying power of Rome. But Jesus offered them neither political nor military, but spiritual power, not power to be soldiers, but power to be witnesses. Not the power of battle axes and battering rams, but the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's be clear then in our minds that witness means words. You may have heard the dictum falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. If necessary, you can't witness if you don't use words. Witness is a verbal process. It's giving evidence in a court of law, in speech. The witness speaks in the witness box. He's not asked to go and stand there and let us observe his witness. The witness tells the truth and is under oath to do so. And by the way, the, the witness has no power. And notice, no responsibility to convict or exonerate. He has no influence. He has no weapons at his disposal except the word of truth. And if we understand this, it will relieve us of concerning ourselves with results. Speak the truth in your witness to Jesus and trust that the Holy Spirit will work with his power in the hearts of our hearers.
The only equipment which Jesus Christ gives to his witnesses in the is the Spirit speaking through the Word. And Luke wonderfully illustrates this in the rest of the Acts, particularly in his great hero, the Apostle Paul. Let's look at one or two quick little cameos. Here is Paul standing in weakness before the philosophers in Athens in chapter 17. On their side is the prestige of the Areopagus, the great traditional council of the philosophers in Athens. But Paul has nothing but the Spirit and the Word. Or here is Paul standing in weakness before the Sanhedrin, the supreme council of the Jews in Jerusalem chapter, in chapter 23. On their side is the weight of Jewish tradition and the commendation of the high priest. But Paul has nothing but the Spirit and the Word. Or again, here is Paul standing in weakness before King Agrippa in court in Caesarea, chapter 26. You'll remember that King Agrippa entered the court in great pomp and in the magnificent regalia of his royal office. Here was Paul standing in rags and tatters as a prisoner and in chains. He had nothing but the Spirit and the Word. Paul was nothing. He had nothing. You know, don't you, that once or twice he uses the wordplay on his name. The Latin version of his name, Paulus, means little or small. That's exactly what he was, if his statues around Rome are any indication. Paul was an unattractive little fellow, and he was regarded as entertainment before the court. He was a joke. He had nothing. How could he stand before the Greek philosopher and the Jewish Sanhedrin and the armed might of Rome? He had no influence. He had no weapons. He had no battalions. He had nothing but the spirit word. He reminds me of Luther, who had such confidence in the Spirit speaking through the word, and returning to Wittenberg in 1522 after exile for about a year, he was trying to encourage his followers. Have confidence in God. See how much God has been able to accomplish, he said. And I did nothing but pray and preach. The word did it all, he said. The Word did it all. The Spirit through the Word. That's where the power is to be found. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the same thing. Some years ago, in the speech he was to give when he received the Nobel Prize for Literature that he wasn't allowed at that time to receive, he spoke about the armed might of the Soviet Union, the repressive regime as it was at that time, their tanks and guns and armaments, their arsenals and their secret police and so on. And he said... One word of truth is more powerful than them all. That's where the power of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated, in the word of truth. So let me recapitulate for a moment and conclude. The power of the Spirit is power to witness. There's no doubt about that in our text. You will receive power and you'll be witnesses. But the Spirit-empowered witness is witness to Christ, not to ourselves, or our experience. It's witness to the weakness of the cross, not to the kind of Christ who calls angels to his rescue. And again, it's the weakness of the cross 
through the weakness of the word. There's been a puzzling text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, and commentators have puzzled over it for years. But Paul rejects using rhetorical techniques to persuade his listeners of the truth of the gospel because he does not want their faith to be based on his creative arguments. Rather, he proclaims the gospel, allowing the Holy Spirit to generate faith in the hearts of those who are open to belief. The Holy Spirit, not persuasive arguments, provides a firm ground for faith. Not by Madison Avenue advertising techniques, not by manipulative psychological pressures, not by personality that is scintillating and overpowering and silencing, but through the weakness of the word of the cross. Perhaps some of us need to repent of our self-conscious lust for power. We need to repent of ever thinking that we could possess the power of the Holy Spirit for self-aggrandizement. You remember the account of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, don't you? He observed the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the apostles and offered to buy it from them as though it were a magic potion that he would give them to power his, to impress his audiences. What an appalling thought that is, to think that we could use the power of the Spirit for our own aggrandizement and advertisement. Oh, we need to repent of those things, and we need to return to the weakness of the word of the cross. And we need to remember, because everything I've said this morning really is a variation on this theme, the biblical paradox of power through weakness. God's power is power through weakness. Jesus did not say, you will become powerful, but you, who are weak, will receive power, a power not your own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For, and here's the paradox again, when I am weak, then I am strong. Boasting of his weaknesses. I can't imagine any of us highlighting our weaknesses on an employment resume. But they're very precious to God. Perhaps you are in chronic physical pain or endure some physical weakness or disability. Or you recognize your inability to counter either active opposition or yawning indifference to your witness. Whatever the case, we are told to rejoice in our weaknesses in order that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Philip Hughes, in his commentary, uh, observes on this text in 2 Corinthians 12, the weaknesses which Paul welcomed were not self-induced. They were given him, verse 7. His weaknesses were a gift. 
And with them was given also grace sufficient for him to triumph through a power not his own, and to rejoice because Christ instead of self was being glorified. Do you ever consider when you encounter situations or people who try your patience that they're gifts from God? Through which, by the Holy Spirit's power, your character is being transformed as a witness to Jesus? Let me close with a 20th century example. David Doe was a pastor in a tropical West African jungle village. It was a small village with a single dirt road lined on both sides with mud-walled thatched roof huts and a church. A building in the middle of the village with mud walls and a corrugated tin roof. As it was in the tropics, there was no need, nor were there resources for glass in the windows. The remarkable thing in my experience was that the entire population of the village were followers of Jesus. So I asked Pastor David if this had always been the case. No, he said, grinning broadly. When God called me to come and preach the gospel of Jesus to this village, the people hated my message, so they left the church. All of them. No one would come to the meetings each week. So, what did you do? I asked. <laughs> what could I do? He laughed. God called me to preach, so I preached. Well, where did you preach? In the church. I was confused. So, who did you preach to if no one came to the church? Again, he laughed. I preached to the empty benches. And when he did preach to those benches, men and boys would stand outside the, opening, the window openings and heckle him and throw stones up onto the roof to create an awful din to distract him and drown him out. Week after week after week. Well, now here's my question to you. If you were in his place, believing that God had called you to be a witness for him in this place, and you were faced with such opposition or indifference, how long would you continue before you concluded that either you had misunderstood your calling in the first place or that God was now calling you to move on? Think about that for a moment. Not only preaching to an empty church, but getting hassled and heckled at every opportunity. How long do you think you'd be able to continue? Couple of weeks? Couple of months? Week by week, witnessing to the finished work of Jesus with no one even listening, much less responding. How about a year? This is not just a question for the clergy. How about two years? With the benches never responding? Will you have packed up and moved on by then? How about five years? How thoughtful would your sermon preparation be? Could you imagine 10 years preaching to empty benches? And all this time, God was refining and perfecting his character. It was after 11 years of preaching to an empty building that one Sunday, the entire village crowded into the church while he was preaching. 
and declared that they wanted to believe in Jesus. My time's gone, so I haven't time now to tell you how this came about. But my point is this. God had called him to be a witness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he remained patient, persevering, gracious, and faithful to his calling, opposition notwithstanding. And apart from this instance right now, I don't suppose anyone out his, outside his village has ever heard his name. Nor was he concerned with his own reputation, but only that Christ would be glorified. That is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit at work. So, will you meditate on our text during the week? You shall receive power. This special kind of power. Power not your own. Demonstrated through human weakness. And then, you can be witnesses unto me. Let us pray. We dearly want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost to enable us to bear witness to Christ. We thank you for this Trinitarian truth about testimony. But we thank you also that it is through human weakness that Christ's power by the Spirit is made perfect. Help us to be willing for this. Help us to experience this not for our own glory, but for, for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen.